Hey everybody and you know future hopeful historians welcome back to the episode of well, the new episode of happy hour history um today the topic of well the topic of this week's episode is going to be the rise of artificial intelligence and how that will increase the racial wealth gap so I saw an interview where Andrew Yang was talking about this, and I wanted to say some things about it and contextualize some of the history of labor in the United States. So I, for one, am not excited about robotics taking over a large segment of the service industry. And I should backtrack and say that it's not just as simple as just thinking about robotics per se, but it is also the automation of so many things that we rely on in our society. So I think we're at a point where it's not just about things being available for convenience, you know, sort of like having a couple checkout lanes in a retail store um, for those people who don't have a lot of items or, or maybe in a hurry, even though, of course, some people would argue that, you know, even having just a couple of those does take away jobs. But I think that it will continue to take jobs away from lower income earners and may even take more jobs away from particular communities. And it's a fact that many of the jobs that are being automated are jobs that tend to pay on the lower end of the pay scale, such as a cashier, um, domestic assistants, phone operator, etc. So there are jobs that people argue could be done efficiently by robots, or AI, right? But that's going to make the wealth gap in the country even worse. And many of you know, wages are already down and have not kept up with the cost of living even over the last, you know, 10, 15 years. So union jobs are harder and harder to come by. And even when a job does have a union, they're not necessarily working for the laborers, but rather alongside the bosses to prevent a strike. Now, and I say that because I know that seems like, well, how could that happen, right? But some unions actually have no strike clauses, which to me makes absolutely no sense, right? If you can't support a labor strike of the employees who feel taken advantage of, then to me, it's like, well, then what is, you know, the major point of having the union, so to speak, you know, quote unquote, backing you in that? instance. And also what you often find is that first, like I won't say where, but I was employed at a place where, um, the, like the HR people were also union reps, right? So it's like, well, how do you, how can you be both, right? How can you work in my best interest as an employee who has a grievance and also be, you know, maintaining what's best for, you know, the place that I was working. So I would encourage all of you to sort of look at like who staffs those positions and really try to see if the unions advocate and are there to help the employees or if they're, you know, just if their payroll, if they're on the payroll of the job or if some of the members of the union who are, you know, the officials are, you know, employed by the job as well. So the wealth gap is already egregious. And 
some of you may not know, but I'm sure most of you do, that women do make less than men for the same work, even when they have the same education and the same experience. But it's even worse when you look at the racial wealth gap. So for black Americans, for example, according to 2020 statistics, black men made 87 cents to every white male dollar. Native American men made 91 cents to the white male dollar. And among Asian men, the rate was actually $1.15 per every white male dollar. And I think that that has a direct correlation to the anti-Asian sentiment that we're seeing happening at Ivy League colleges, for example, that are being called out for their entrance barriers that disproportionately exclude Asian applicants. But that's another topic for another podcast episode. So by 2053, it is um, projected that the average black household's net worth will be zero dollars. So that's, you know, economists, people who crunch numbers and understand trends of the economy. They're saying that the average black household's net worth will be zero. And that's horrible because it really affirms that race is a caste system even still in the United States. And people try to pass it off by saying, oh, you know, things are equal now, but they weren't equal for most of the history of this country. And I'm not even breaking it down by, you know, by state. I'm talking about just at a federal level. But you can't correct 361 years of inequity and inequality, right? Because those are two different things. You can't correct that in 41 years. And I got the number 41 because the British controlled American colonies were started in 1619 with the establishment of Jamestown. And the most residual inequality in the workplace was eradicated in the 1980s. So I did the math to get that number. The 41 years since 1980 is where we are today, 2021. So black families were not able to buy into the promise of America throughout history. And I would encourage you all to think about, you know, how many black families live in your neighborhood? Think about that. Like wherever you grew up, how many black families lived in that neighborhood? There's a reason why, right? And the same could be said for different Latinx or Hispanic groups, right? How many of them live in lived in your neighborhood, like who you went to school with on equal terms? Um, but real estate lobbies, redlining, people being outpriced for homes, and flat out being excluded from certain neighborhoods are things that have happened in the history of this country, and especially to black applicants, even when they could afford to live in a neighborhood, they were often excluded. So these things weren't fully made illegal until the 1980s in a lot of the places that are considered the most major liberal American cities. Um, And even though they were technically made illegal in the 1980s, we know that they still continue to happen today in this country. So what I mean by that in the 80s is that's where you have the striking down of, you know, um, private housing development, um, housing covenants, things like that, that say, um, you know, like in this particular private neighborhood, you know, we're not taking any black applicants, right? Or in San Diego, they also had anti uh, Jewish agreements, right? So like they did not allow anybody who was Jewish to live in some of these communities around San Diego. So that's an example of a housing covenant, but you also had a lot of stuff with the real estate associations 
within the state and within the different counties where they were heavily discouraged from even showing homes to people who would have been considered um, not desired um, neighbors or residents, I should say, not desired residents. And if they did show a home or sell a home to one of these people who was seen as an outsider, again, usually black, but it could also be Jewish, Mexican, American, et cetera, um, they would lose their real estate license. So those things were finally, finally, finally eradicated in the 1980s. And I keep saying that because I was born in the late 80s. Okay. So again, we think about things are being equal, right? Uh, Quote unquote, most families who were excluded from those neighborhoods, even since the 50s or the 60s, can't afford to buy into them now, even in even in the 80s, right? They can't afford to buy into those neighborhoods now because part of redlining is designating certain neighborhoods as better quality. And of course, we know that this is all planned at the city governance level. So how many trees are going up, where the schools are located, if there's any shopping centers nearby, how the transit system runs, if it's well lit, how often, you know, the um, emergency services, how close or far away they are, how quickly you can get um, a police response if you need to call 911 if there's an emergency, things like that is all designated by the city, which is why we say that the city, excuse me, that the government (laughs) segregated America. So I just wanted to like clear that up a little bit, but the racial wealth gap is exacerbated by the difference in home valuation for those people who own property. So gentrification of neighborhoods will be the next analyzed period of time, I think, like when we look back on history, um, I think it'll probably be analyzed from about the year 2000 until the next real estate bubble crashes. And I know we had a real estate bubble crash in 2008, but we are technically overdue for another one. And the crash in 2008 disproportionately affected homeowners of color who were given subprime banks or subprime loans by banks that knew that they would likely be defaulted on once the bubble burst and the interest levels raised because of you know variable interest rates and things like that. So it would be a financial gain for the bank that backed the loan, right? Not the family who moved into that into that uh, residence. And again, sure. They could get the house, they could purchase the house in that generation, but they were sold the house because they were not ideal candidates in the first place. And the bank knew what was happening with the economy, knew that we were going to have a bubble pop, and they wanted to be able to capitalize on that. I also want to take a sidebar to say that oftentimes statistics for, you know, Latinos or Latinx are lumped together. And I've talked about how that's not a race, Um, but The reason that it tends to be so low in compared to like, you know, white groups, for example, is because many in that group are considered indigenous or black Latinx. Now, for example, like white Latinx are often lumped into the white statistics. So we've been over the fact that Latinx is not a race. I've talked about that in previous episodes. It's an ethnic group made up of different races of people. But I wanted to say that sometimes those conflations distort data for that particular statistical group. Now, when it comes to the property that remains in the hands of older ethnic community members, we know that they are subject to predatory offers for of cash for their homes and that are much less that offer is much less than the actual value of the home because the cash offer can give them immediate relief without having to go through the lengthier banking process of selling their home. And banks and even real estate websites that were meant to make you aware of homes in a given area that are for sale are purchasing up homes. So many of you may have heard about, I think it was, 
I think it was Zillow, but I'm not sure. But one of those real estate type websites was buying up large portions of homes in areas where people were, you know, heavily looking up in that in any given zip code. And now they're in a situation where they've taken on more than they can sell and they're trying to unload it. So again, it all that does is drive up the price of homes and makes it harder for Americans and working families to purchase those homes and live in them. Now they're just empty because these companies are trying to cut a profit off of what is supposed to be, you know, part of that achievable American dream. It makes it less accessible for the people who have consistently been outpriced and excluded from access to home ownership. So there are people who are trying to advocate within these communities, especially for people who are more vulnerable to these types of cash offers for their homes, including elderly people of color, to not sell their home. So in effect, to get what the price is worth if they do decide to sell or to keep it in their family where, you know, when it's possible so that they can benefit from it in the long run, right? Like maybe selling it down the road and being able to get the true value of the home, not sell it for quick cash. For example, you know, getting $175,000 in cash for a home that's really worth, you know, four or $500,000, things like that. Now, one issue with the rising cost of housing is, you guessed it, gentrification. And this is happening because many working class white individuals and white families who don't have access to generational wealth want to be able to purchase a home but are unable to afford to buy into pricier neighborhoods. They are not able to rely on things like inheritances from their parents or grandparents that can serve as down payments for a home, right, for example. So they go where they can afford, which is commonly in neighborhoods that were historically built for people of color to prevent those families from moving into white neighborhoods. So today we call that gentrification and many frown on that process without realizing the full circle events that are causing it in the first place. Because like I said, a lot of these neighborhoods were built um, for different ethnic and racial groups of people. And they were consistently devalued by the real estate lobby and by the city because of all the city planning and because of redlining and different color codes that were given. And so in areas where you had predominantly black or brown populations, they would usually be ranked lower on a redlining map, which meant that their home value um, was never the same as the areas that were predominantly white. So um, I personally don't consider people of color who move into a neighborhood that they're not originally from, but that they can afford to buy into. I don't personally consider that gentrification because often their choices are much fewer from where they can live and where a bank will ensure their home to even be purchased in. So again, redlining still happens today, and it's the practice of herding people in specific groups, usually by race, into certain neighborhoods. So today that can be done more in a roundabout way by encouraging families to live or look for homes in specific areas or real estate agents who maybe don't make a home available to certain potential buyers. We still see these things happening where, you know, especially when the owner of a home has say in who buys their house, you know, like, and then they're, you know, looking for someone who they think is a good fit for their house because of course they have an emotional attachment to this house because it's been in their family, you know, for decades. So historically speaking, many of the housing 
protections that Americans have come to rely on were created as part of the New Deal in the 1930s. However, black families were specifically restricted from being able to access this. So even among black veterans with the GI Bill after World War II, roughly half of the black veterans were unable to access their benefits because of those restrictive housing covenants, things like redlining, and also the federal government refusing to enforce the 14th Amendment, which guarantees equal protection under the law, not just citizenship. So I think that, you know, a lot of times people forget about that equal protection part, but it should be noted that the 1954 Brown v. Board of Education decision that we all kind of read about with regard to civil rights and other legislation of that era did not encompass housing integration. So that was done on purpose as an effort to maintain racial segregation in um, neighborhoods, and it upheld a lot of commonly practiced um segregation tactics of housing developers and um, real estate agents, etc. So the wealth gap today is especially obvious among millennials. And just for context, after, because I always forget the order, but after the baby boomers, which is, I think, what, like 1945 to 1960 are baby boomers. And then there's Generation X, or sometimes they're called Gen X for short, which went, which I think goes until the early 80s or the mid 80s. And then millennials are from the mid 80s to like 90 or 91, I want to say. Um, but for millennials, home ownership is rare unless they're able to take advantage of government subsidy programs or, or again, have access to family money to assist in the homeowning process. Now, why is that? A lot of it's because of the shift of labor and stagnant wages, like I mentioned earlier, that is still present today. So there are other external things that increase the wealth gap as well, such as the price paid for education, which can result in high student loan debts and high interest rates, the rising cost of living in most American cities because it is very expensive to be a citizen of this country. I don't think people talk about that enough. Um, increasing costs of health care, medical treatment, including medicine, and even, like I mentioned before, the loss of union jobs. So all of those things were much more stabilized during the baby boomer and Gen X generations, and they have not been for millennials. And, you know, even among people I know who are millennials, most of them do not own homes, even if they have, you know, professional good jobs. And a lot of that does vary by state as well, because, of course, cost of living varies by state. But um, we see a lot less of these things like home ownership, especially. I mean, most of the people I know in the professional field don't have kids, Um these things are, you know, much different than previous generations because of the sort of economic environment that we're dealing with. I know that there are shows that we've become accustomed to watching that make it seem like it's a rat race to the American dream. And it's scary that that form of entertainment is very much a reality. So I had a student who realized and shared with me that the only way, and he's, you know, come into this consciousness in the last few years, but that the only way he was able to purchase his condo him here in San Diego was because of his VA loan program. And he stated that he realized now as an older adult, because he's no longer like 18, 19 years old, that he shouldn't have had to put his life at risk and his health at risk. And as he said, participate in invading other countries and displacing people to access home ownership for himself, right? Um, and the same thing could be said of education. 
people shouldn't have to go tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars into debt to get the paperwork to back their career choice, right? Just even for entry level or to have access to those types of jobs to make enough money to maybe someday be able to participate in that American dream that we're still sold through our entertainment. And that debt hampers their participation in the market economy, obviously, because the money could be going toward purchasing items to stimulate business. Like I said, it could go toward saving a home. Um, but instead, it's going to a corporate entity for money that serves no function except to make them richer. And of course, I'm not even going to get into how it's all backed you know, by the government anyway. But that is one thing that you know President Biden hasn't delivered on, right, was the cancellation of student debt really by any means. So circling back to artificial intelligence, I think that the shipping crisis that's plaguing the port cities, especially in California, like at Long Beach, um, I saw that actually a couple weeks ago, I drove over the port of Long Beach and it was slammed. There was a ton of ships. Like it's just like you see on the media or, you know, on the news. Um, But what if the shipping companies decided, for example, that to prevent the labor shortage and keep supply chains open, that they should rely on artificial intelligence or robotic labor to unload the ships and containers to move the products to the stores? That would, again, affect the jobs of working class people and increase the wealth gap even further than it already is. Because now, you know, you don't have to pay those people. So it's more money for the businesses. But we all know that they're not paying their fair share of taxes. So it's not benefiting society at all. Now, It would be done, of course, under the guise of preventing supply chain shortages in the future, but, and of course, you know, I guess like benefiting consumers because we would be able to get our items, wouldn't have to wait a long time or deal with, you know, high shipping prices or items getting lost in transit, but it would not be good for, you know, the average citizen. So there was also a shortage of people right now who have class A and class B licenses so that they can drive and operate vehicles and machinery to carry out the normal functions of city management and order fulfillment. So there's an effort to create technology of self-driving cars and trucks, including electric semi-trucks, if you haven't heard about that. I've been reading about that for the last like year and a half about different companies that are starting to get more into the electric car and electric semi-truck game. It's not going to be you know just Tesla soon, which is good because I don't want to talk about that. <laughs> it's just, I'm glad there's going to be some more competition. Um, it's good from a sustainability angle, of course, with regard to zero emission trucks. Um, but it's not necessarily sustainable if they're not going to have drivers in them, right? So... If you're going to fire drivers or rely on self-driving electric trucks, then it's something that's going to could potentially lead to a social issue in the next decade or so. And, you know, in closing, I also find it interesting that Andrew Yang was discussing artificial intelligence and its effect on the black community for, you know, for this increase in the racial wealth gap and for having a detriment to society and jobs that are commonly staffed by black Americans. But, Being that his community won't likely suffer the most from the effects of this change, I'm hoping that Andrew Yang is committing himself to calling out and stopping the disproportionate effects on the black community as an ally. But given the things I've seen on how he moves with politics and sort of how he, you know, addresses systemic problems and racism amongst, you know, his group and even other groups, I am not optimistic about it, but I will keep it in my back pocket as something that I hope to see from him, like meaningful allyship to stop this thing. Because he definitely has a point, right? But what's the point of bringing it to our attention if you're not going to say what you're going to do 
as a member who will not be affected by that to help your brothers and sisters who are going to be affected by it. Speaking of capitalism, the holiday spending spree has begun. I've been seeing a lot of ads about Black Friday deals, even though we're very much in the first week of November. So I would like to take the time to advocate for small businesses um, and just share that you should definitely consider frequenting small businesses this holiday season if you're purchasing gifts rather than ordering from large corporations that, again, are relying on shipping containers, which are already overwhelmed. And, you know, getting money to the communities who are making things and not just giving to giant corporations that, again, are not paying their fair share of taxes. Obviously, it's not possible to do this for everything, right? But it is possible to find local makers, go to farmers markets in our local areas, search on Etsy, finding small businesses to purchase gifts from and even cards, Um, for like greeting cards, if you still send those. (laughs) So in a future podcast, I'll talk more about small companies and ideas that you can take into consideration if you're gifting this holiday season. But because I was seeing the ads already, I just wanted to bring it up lightly. So have a great day or night and I'll see you on the next episode. Thanks so much for listening. I'll talk to you all later. Bye.